Good evening. Hope you all are doing well. It's great to be here. Um, we started, well, I started our first series uh, ever in my, my time of preaching, and it's called The Beauty of God's Standards, and it's based off the class that we've been learning in the, in the teen class um, from a book called The Beauty of Intolerance, and this idea that it is beautiful to be intolerant, and by that we mean by holding to God's standards. See, we covered last time, uh, last month when we did this, we put two lessons into one and we covered the meaning of the beauty of intolerance and then we covered some definitions, um, different definitions about how we interpret uh, the world from the biblical standard and what those uh, definitions mean in the culture. And we covered things like love and respect and dignity and kindness and we compared and contrasted them. And the basic conclusion that we came down to last month was that intolerance, according to the Bible, is a, is a beautiful thing because we're using the Bible and God's standards as a measuring stick. And when we do things in using God's nature and love and dignity uh, and we treat people in that manner, then it actually brings hope to people when we hold to God's standards. And the cultural... Uh, basically, the cultural understanding of everything was um, you can't love me unless you condone everything that I'm doing, unless you agree with everything I'm doing. It's like following blindly. You have to accept and celebrate and encourage my behaviors. And that is what the culture, uh, basically, we boiled it down to. That's what the culture says kindness and love and respect and dignity is. And what we're going to cover today um, is the beauty of God's standards part two. Why do we believe that the Bible is the authority of God? And that is basically what we're going to cover. Uh, how authoritative is the Bible? And what I want us to do today is I want us to, uh, and I don't want this to sound crazy, but I want us to take our faith and just kind of set it off to the side and put on our thinking caps. Let's think about this logically. When I started reading the Bible, when, when we had Fawn, uh, and I started trying to figure out which way I was going to live my life, I didn't have some giant spiritual come-to-God moment that was just like, oh, this is God talking to me, this is my faith. No, it was a series of logical concepts and decisions and truths that brought me to an understanding of this is true, this is what I believe, and now I can put my faith in it. And so, have you ever heard of uh, things like, or these phrases, you must decide what is right for you. I hear that, I hear that a lot, especially coming from the friend group that I had before. Uh, when I told them I was going to go into ministry, well, if that's what's right for you, you know, go, go ahead and do that. Um, what they were doing was they were giving me permission to follow my own truth, so to speak. Do it. Do it if that's what your heart's telling you to do. you got to listen to your heart. Oh, I mean, if, if you don't listen to your heart, you're really, you're really setting yourself up for failure. Of course, as Christians, we, we know the heart is deceitful above all things. Or something even more, uh, uh, more strong, I guess, is the word we're looking for. Um, it's wrong to impose your morals on me or on somebody else, especially in today's climate or as a Christian when we say we can't do this or I don't think we should do this based on the standard of measurement that God has set 
forward for us, right? The Bible is our authority, and this is what we measure it off of. Well, you can't tell me how to live my life. You can't impose your moral standards on me. See, this all leads to something that is really catastrophic, because when moral truth becomes a matter of opinion, personal preference, and individual uh, views or feelings, then anything is permitted, so we, we have this phrase that we've gone over and over again. I'm sure the teens could probably say it. But if we believe that God created us in his image, we must what? Well, I can't hear you. Come on. We must believe that he created everyone in his image. And so when we talk about biblical authority, especially with people who don't believe the same that we do, we can't just bring up Bible verses and say, well, the Bible says this about itself. Right? They're not going to listen to us. And so tonight we're going to, we're going to look at some uh, different ways that the culture views the Bible, that we view the Bible. And then we're going to look at some historical proofs that we can give um, that wherever you're at, um, that are extra biblical or, or non, non-biblical resources um, from history that you can use yourself uh, and, and, of course, the teens, they've had this class before, can use them yourself to... Uh, Convince people or use, uh, put in your back pocket as proofs that we're just not a bunch of crazies following some book that's not inspired. And so let's start by looking at how our culture sees the Bible. The culture sees the Bible as a truth, one among many, all right? Whenever you bring up religion, you bring up Jesus, you often hear of, uh, you also hear of the, the Muslim faith, or you hear of uh, Buddhist or Hindu. It goes across the, across the bridge. It's all, the, the culture talks about it on these evil, even, evil, even playing fields. And they just see the Bible as one truth among many instead of the truth. They say, they, they say that the Bible is not true for everyone, only those who believe that to be the case. So, um, again, this is your truth. If that's what you choose to believe, go for it. That's, that's whatever you want to do. However, that's not what I believe. And so uh, these standards, you can't measure me based on these. And um, well, we'll cover that later, but we know that not to be accurate. The Bible is just a book full of stories. I hear this one a lot, especially about uh, the, the account of Genesis. Um, the, the account of the Bible is just a, a bunch of stories or, or insights, and we don't have to take everything literally or figuratively. We just have to take bits and pieces and apply it based on how we decide to interpret it, right? Uh, people can use the Bible uh, however they want to create their own truths. It's more of a reference guide. Um, and, and again, we don't see it that way. And I've heard this one, unfortunately, on, on social media a lot from a lot of younger people who claim to be preachers. The Bible is too old to be relevant, and therefore it is kind of a detriment to reaching out to would-be Christians. Um, it's a lot like how a lot of people describe the Declaration of Independence now, right? It's, not, it, it, it's, it's just not relevant. It's an old document from way back in the day. And uh, it doesn't serve us any purpose now because times have changed. And so if you really want to reach people with, with Jesus and Christ, just go ahead and throw out, the, throw out these old scriptures and, and do what you feel Jesus would do. I can feel Jesus would do a lot of things that he, 
he wouldn't do in the scriptures. So let's not get rid of those. Our culture sees the Bible, again, as one of many religious documents among many. There is no universal truth to be found in it. It is merely just a self-help book as people create their own truth. And this makes the individual their own God. And that's really what it boils down to. How many of us like being told what to do? Me neither, right? I don't like being told what to do. However, the culture sees the Bible as one giant handbook of things you can't do. So if you just don't get into it, or you don't believe it, well then it can't ruin my fun. You know? That was an excuse I I used. You know? If I read the Bible, I'm going to come across something that convicts me. And man, this alcohol or these cigarettes aren't going to taste the same. (laughs) You know, if I'm convicted. However, how do Christians see the Bible? We see the Bible as an account of God's relationship with humanity and His reveal, uh, His revealed will to us in the Scriptures. We see it as more than just a self-help book, though it very much is a book in how to help oneself. But it's also a roadmap to live in this reality that God created. All right, Second Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is God God breathed and useful for teaching, reproof, reproof, rebuking. An inspired collection of letters, inspired, underlined, because we believe who wrote it? It's okay to talk to me a little bit. Who wrote the Bible? The Holy Spirit, God. All right? It's inspired. It's not, culture sees it as a man-made text. Um, This is man-written through the inspiration of God. And it's a collection of not just things to, to keep us trapped or confined, But it's a collection of letters and songs and poetry, very beautiful things given to mankind by God, 2 Peter 1, 21. A collection of history, the Bible is, that we can and have proven happened in the Old Testament, and that's supposed to say, and New Testament. I didn't notice that until earlier. The Bible, as Christians see it, is a tool God created through men to reveal himself to us. One can come to know and understand God, learn his plan for humanity, and find proofs of the world through the reading of the Bible. The Bible contains universal truth as God created the universe, which we explored in our last class, or sermon, and personal feelings do not determinate truth. Uh, If you guys, there's this uh, podcaster out there, he's a political podcaster, and he says, facts don't care about your feelings. Personal truth or feelings do not determine the truth. It doesn't matter how we feel about it. If, it. if God said it, if we find it in the scriptures and we find it to be biblical within its context, then our feelings don't matter about the situation. And that's how we know there's a universal truth in it. Uh, so we talk about what our pillars of faith are. And depending on, uh, depending on if you come from a denomination Uh, This may sound a little familiar to you, but I truly believe there's a little bit of truth in these pillars of faith. And the pillars of faith that we want our kids to be uh, building their faith on is logical to me. I think it all starts logically. And one, the first one is the historic reliability of the scriptures. There is, in fact, credible evidence that proves what the Bible says. The scripture is God-breathed, again, 2 Timothy 3.16, and we have proven the history of the Bible on many different occasions, and so logic dictates that the Bible is the word of God. That's a pillar of faith. 
Number three, the de- or number two, the deity of Christ. Non-biblical resources have written about Jesus, and we'll cover that here in just a little bit. But we not only prove that he existed, um, but they also prove that there's a group called Christians that come from him specifically. If logic dictates this information in the Bible is true, then the claim that Jesus makes that he is the Son of God must also be true. Again, let's not, let's not rely just on our faith. Let's just think logically about this. And number three, Christ's bodily resurrection. Jesus' body is never found. He claimed he would rise from the dead, and he did. The Bible says that Jesus showed himself to hundreds of people. We get that from 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 17 through 18. 500 is what Paul says. And non-biblical history documents confirm what the Bible says about this. The body has never been found so logically if the body hasn't been found after 2,000 years, it's not there to be found. So we can believe that Jesus did what? He rose from the dead, just like he said he would do, like no one else has done. We can put our faith in that logically. And so now I'd like to get us into some Old Testament proofs. These are going to be things, again, if you want to talk to your friends in and, and love and dignity, you can't just pull out the scriptures and say, this is what the Bible says, because it's not going to convict them in that sense. Uh, our goal with this class is to, to talk to people, not preach at people. All right, The Bible will convict the hearts of men, but we've got to get our foot in the door for them to give us the opportunity to preach to them. And we do... A, we, uh, one of the guys had come down, and I want to I say John had told me about this. Uh, but one of the guys that, that we had gotten, I think it was Jack Dodgen, was that who it was? Said that, that we spend a lot of time welcoming people in the neighborhood by throwing a, a welcome note attached to a brick through the window. You know, the, this idea that we are loving people, we want to give you the message, but man, our approach kind of, kind of is not so hot. And so this is something that we can do. We can give them historical evidence that is found outside the Bible that relates with what the Bible says and let logic do the work. Does anybody recognize uh, this, this account right here? Everybody should know this. No? Okay. These are some hieroglyphs found in Egypt, um, specifically attached to the pharaoh uh, Shishakak. Uh, I I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. but he is written about in 1 Kings 11, 40 and 14, 25, specifically that uh, he's the Egyptian pharaoh that was uh, warring and conquering the land. And here uh, we find that the pharaoh of Egypt mentioned in the Bible, we have discovered him specifically and his conquests. Those are all his soldiers while he's going through con- conquesting uh, or conquering Palestine. And so when we read about this, and we find that the names and the dates and the time frame, all that stuff matches up to what the Bible proof is, it, it, it tells me that, that the Bible must be historically accurate, even if only in this particular account, given the benefit of the doubt there. All right, does anybody recognize these, these dig sites? It was first discovered in the 70s, 1973. Anybody? No? I know we don't usually usually talk from the pulpit, sorry. But, uh, all right, does anybody recognize what that is next to it? A little white ball? I can't. No? That's that's brimstone. This is a dig site of Sodom and Gomorrah, or what they believe in in 
generally accept as Sodom and Gomorrah. And this, what you see right next to it, that is preserved ball of white sulfur, better known as brimstone. And you can get on YouTube and see what they do with this stuff. They pull it out of the ground and the way they light it on fire. Oh, it's so, it's so neat. Kind of scary the way it burns. Uh, if you think about that hurling at you from the sky. But where do we read about that? Genesis eighteen nineteen, Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis says that the city, cities were destroyed by fire and brimstone. And these archaeologists have discovered evidence of, of a high temperature event. Um, rock, they, they're finding rock that has been turned into glass, uh, structures destroyed by being melted, uh, and distribution of bones through heavy impacts. Uh, can you imagine that? An, an impact so strong that when it hits you as a live person, you're, uh, it's crazy. And again, preserved balls of brimstone. So people, I like to use this count specifically for people who say that Genesis is just a collection of stories and we can do what we want with it and we can interpret it how we can. Uh, this seems to be a very literal account in Genesis. So I take Genesis quite literally. Now, everybody should be able to read this one, even without your glasses. This one, uh, this is the laws of Hammurabi. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Genesis 37 through 28. Joseph's brothers um, have thrown him into a pit, and they pull him out, and they sell him uh, to these passing by uh, traders. And the laws of Hammurabi, the, the biggest, most complete, and extensive laws about that Babylon, from the Babylonian period, um, state something very interesting. How much was Joseph sold for? 20 shekels. The laws of Hammurabi, guess how much you buy and sell certain slaves for? 20 shekels. Isn't that crazy? See, we have these confirmations that we see in the Bible that are found outside of the Bible. And so we can use our brains and logic to dictate that this isn't just some made-up mumbo-jumbo. That this was taking place in, on, on a real earth, in a real world, in real societies that really happened. And that, that will sway. It did for me. That's, that will sway someone's logic. Uh, I, I like to say a lot, and I probably, sh- I don't know if it's inaccurate or not, but I'll say it, but... I don't think it takes a big come-to-faith spiritual experience to come to Jesus. I think little bits of truth over time, and you start, if you're honest with yourself, that logic will, will dictate that you need to have faith and start believing. Here's some New Testament proofs if you, if you want that. I think it's important. Luke 3, 1 through 2. Uh, he's giving us the reign of the emperor, and it's uh, Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor, and uh, this is an actual certified uh, piece of coin, however much it is. I don't know what it means. But uh, this has been certified, authentic from the time. And guess whose face is on it? Not Luke's. Yeah, Tiberius Caesar. Oh, well, something happened. I guess he blew it up for me. Um, and so we can, we can know that when Luke writes about the time that this, that this is and whose reign that these events are happening under, and then we find literal pieces of evidence, we can go, oh, well, this guy is probably telling us the truth. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie, for 
doing that for us. That's awesome. I was going to write all 54 places that, that this particular uh, uh, piece was mentioned, but that would just take a long time. Uh, Pontius Pilate. We all know him as, as the guy that, uh, that Jesus was given over to uh, for crucifixion. This is called the Pilate Stone, the Pontius uh, Pilate Stone, and it is, within it is inscribed his name and his position. Again, confirm confirmation from the Bible. <clears throat> Pontius Pilate, to me, this is, this is a very big discovery because he is mentioned 54 times in, in six different books of the New Testament. So if you're looking for one piece of evidence that spans and brings together unity within the New Testament scriptures, this is, this is a really good one. It's, it's hard to refute this one. Um, of course, there, there are some people like the Pharaoh that Moses dealt with uh, who will just be hard of heart. John 9, 1 through 41. Jesus is, uh, comes to a man who has uh, been blind. He was, he was born blind. And he spits in some mud and he rubs it in his eyes. And uh, then he tells the man to go do what? Bathe in the pool of Siloam. And guess what they found? They found the pool of Siloam. Originally an empress, uh, I can't remember her name, I didn't write it all down. But she had, in honor of that story, account, she had built one about 70 meters away from this one. And it was, it was one that people would go to visit, it, but it wasn't the real one. And then as years went by and they, they did more, more digging, they were actually digging out the drainage systems. They found this pool about 70 meters from the one that they had built in honor of, of this account. And this is, this is considered by, by most people who take uh, this seriously to be the actual pool that this happened in. And so now we've got an event of Jesus, other than his crucifixion, on record. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> right? Uh, to me, it's just, it's just so much fun to go through and, and find these things in the Bible that are outside the Bible because what it does for me is it strengthens my faith as a Christian. And for those who aren't Christians, you give them evidence that it's really hard for them to refute because all their faith is in what? It's in science and what man can do. Guess what science and man are finding? Things that prove the Bible. <clears throat> Two more here. Flavius Josephus, um, if you've taken any, any classes or done, done uh, any type of just kind of historical uh, apologetics, uh, this is one that comes up often, but I think it's important. Uh, he wrote the Jew- Jewish Iniquities, which is a 20-volume history, considered the most complete and accurate history of the first century Palestine. Um, he wrote about Jesus and that Jesus was, in fact, a real person who existed. Um, and he did surprising things, which we would know as miracles, signs, wonders, things that confirmed that he was from God. And he writes that he was given into the hands of Pontius Pilate for crucifixion. So he doesn't write a great deal about him, but he does write things that are completely accurate. Uh, according to what the scriptures tell us. And everybody knows this guy. I mean, I have a bust of him inside my house. Not really. This is Cornelius Tacitus, and he's considered one of the greatest Roman historians. Um, and he writes about Christians and how they called themselves this, this type of, this 
actual word Christians, based on Christus, or Christ. And guess what? This Christ was given up for crucifixion during Tiberius' reign. See, we, we have all this evidence. And a lot of times what we do is we say, you just don't have enough faith if you don't believe. And I think a lot of times one of the best ways to come to faith, come to believe, is to use the information that's been given to us. And sometimes, especially like for me, I'm a very tangible, physical type of guy. I need to see it. I need it to be confirmed. Logic, apologetics, I mean, that's, that's where it's at. Don't apologize for being right, by the way. And so that brings us to biblical authority. Everything we've learned, everything that we've now taken and we can provide and give as some foundations of historical proof bring us to biblical authority. This is why I believe the Bible is the authority, the moral authority by which I should live for as a Christian. If I can believe the Bible is historically accurate throughout, then logically I can believe the message is accurate throughout. It wouldn't make any sense if the Bible is historically accurate all the way through, but only the message was the inaccurate part. Logic does not dictate that at all. So if the message is accurate, then logically, the message must be what? The will of God revealed. It's not just some crazy book. This is the Word of God. If the message is the will of God, then logically there is a God and He has a purpose for my life. And when we approach people in love and dignity and respect who don't believe, when we tell them this, that God has a purpose for your life, we're giving them something that you and I already have, but what they're searching for. And I said it last time. And that's hope. They want hope that there's something more than this messed up world that we're stuck in. And this message contains that. If God has a purpose for me, then logically I will find His will for me in His Word revealed in the Scriptures. And logically, if the Bible is His Word revealed, then it is the authority on how I should live my life on this earth. See, it doesn't mean anything to those we're trying to bring the lost, we're trying to bring in, if we just tell them what the Bible says and we don't help, help them in a the thought process. All right, I, I understand it. Uh, Philip and the eunuch. How can I understand unless someone guides? Guide is the word. And so often we shout. We point and say, you don't get it? When really, we should be doing what they did and guiding people to the truth. In conclusion... There's a couple conclusions, so don't break your Bibles or your books out yet. But there is history that can be and has been confirmed in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. I love Kim Wall's sermons. I love him as a preacher. I think he's awesome. In the words of Kim Wall, Christians don't have to check their brains at the door. So often we're told that we just live by faith. Whatever, whatever God wants, wants us to do or whatever he says, we're just going to go ahead and do it. Yes, absolutely, that's true. But he also gave us these things to think. 
And he gave us ways in which to act and mannerisms in which to follow. We don't have to check our brains at the door and and blindly follow the Bible. In fact, God has provided us proofs to know the Bible is real and true through logic. Logic is part of our faith. In fact, logic dictates how we should study the scriptures in their proper context. Right? That's where, that's where we get this word proof text. Because people will check their brain at the door and not take in the context of the scripture, of the Bible verse. Or they won't take into, uh, into consideration the time in which they were talking about. Or the people they were talking to. A lot of these, a lot of these letters in here, none of them were written to the United States of America or the church in Choctaw. Right? We, we take it and we get the true meaning out of it using our logic, and we apply it to ourselves. And when we, come to, uh, when we come to believe the Bible is truly God's Word, and we study and apply it in that manner, we begin to grow our faith. And when we grow our faith, we do something that's so important. We become fruitful. And we'll talk about that in a, in a, in a much later lesson that we're working on. But it's important to become fruitful. And the one who designed us and all of his creation, we can take solace that he did not leave us empty-handed. He gave us the Bible to know him and his son. And the one who designed reality, this is what we're fighting against in the culture. We're fighting against reality because our realities don't match. That's not true. He gave a way for humanity to live in reality properly, and God wants to make things clear. That's why he gave us the Bible, and the Bible is his word. And if we can agree that it is historically accurate, that the message is accurate, and the things contained therein are true and accurate, well, then it is our authority, and it is the universal truth. That, that's, just, that's just what it is. That's not my faith speaking. That's pure, simple logic. And finally, my favorite logical thing, uh, 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 my favorite logical conclusion actually comes from the Bible. That's why I left it till last, because then I'd contradict myself about telling people, just giving them Bible verses running away. But a Pharisee named uh, Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5, all right, the apostles are going around and they're preaching and uh, they've been, uh, they're in Jerusalem and a, uh, they've been preaching and they have been arrested and put on trial. They're brought before this council in Acts chapter 5. And uh, they're basically told, hey, we told you to quit preaching about Jesus. We told you to quit doing this. And I believe it was Peter, his response is, we must obey God rather than men. Gives a little bit after that. And then they get mad, and then they send them out. And let's go ahead and pick up here in verse 34 of Acts chapter 5. But a Pharisee in the council named uh, Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thudius, or Thaduus, whatever, rose up claiming to be somebody... And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. 
After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from those men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Then they brought him in, and they beat him, and they let him go. How many of you in here uh, come to God through, uh, through Deus? Or Judas the Galilean? This isn't my logic. This is, this is the logic of a Pharisee 2,000 years ago. We're still here coming to God through Jesus, gathering on the first day of the week to remember him. His name is all over this world. People in third world countries are coming to him in droves as Christianity declines here. And I just want to say that we worship an almighty God who gave us an authoritative word, but he gave us his son so that we could have access to him again. And we know that because the scriptures are historically accurate. The message is true. And that's the hope that we can give to other people, the lost, when we approach them. So, as we close, if you are not a member of the body of Christ, if you haven't come to Jesus to know him, if your faith is waning or you don't know how to have faith yet, then let logic do its work on your heart. Because the Bible is accurate and it's true. It is God's word and our authority on this earth. And if I even had the slightest bit of doubt, I wouldn't be here. I'd still be plumbing. Jesus is the one true son of God. And he sacrificed himself for you and me. He willingly walked into, well, rode a donkey into Jerusalem. And God wants us to come to him through Jesus. Because this world is not all that's left for us. We're going to come into judgment. And I hope that all of us are in Christ. Because the only way to the Father is through Him. So if you have any need, if you have any more questions, these obviously just are not the only historical proofs. There's so more. In fact, there's usually like ten. There's an archaeological thing that comes out. Uh, every year, and they usually have 10 every year, different finds of the Bible. It's just so, uh, to me, uh, uplifting and faith-building to see these uh, non-biblical proofs for what we believe. So if you have any need, if you need prayers of the church, or you just want to talk, uh, you're not sure where you're at, that's totally okay. But now is the time as we stand and sing.